This is Heather, and you're listening to Hey, this is Peter this is Justin. This is Alex Tennyson, you're listening to Hi, this is Alexander Stern, and you are listening to Radio Hi, this is Kat, you're listening to Radio Hi, this is Mike Burns, you're listening to Radio and you're listening to Radio Mopka. This is John Kimlico, and this is Radio Mopco. I want to welcome everyone here for episode 18. Got a really special episode this week. We've had a wonderful improv teacher in, uh, Mr. Michael Rock from down in New York City. Um, Hello, Michael. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, and uh, Ms. Kat Coppett's here to help us out. She's an old friend of Michael. She's known him for years. Uh, They've done a lot of performing together, and uh, welcome, Kat. Hi, John. We had a really fun day today. We did a lot of fun stuff with Michael. He was uh, teaching us this morning. He kind of had a basic class this morning, and, uh, and then we had our Shakespeare this afternoon. It was a lot of fun. It is one of my greatest pleasure in life to be able to pull my teachers and mentors and friends from the old days and, and bring them up and share them up here. I didn't know if you knew Michael. I, was, uh, I went through Second City, oh. and I actually studied with Michael Gilman. Oh, cool. Yeah, he turned me on to uh, uh, Joseph Campbell. And how, long, how long ago was this? Uh, 20 years. Oh, so this was before the change. Wh- which change was that? Well, he's, he's uh, clean and sober now. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, 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 is, it has been quite a change. Yeah. A delightful and positive one. Yeah, it was, pr- it was pretty cool. This was like in 92, 93. And uh, but he turned me on to Joseph Campbell, which changed, totally changed my perspective on stories and storytelling and the whole quest. And it was pretty amazing. I still think about it and turn people on to it whenever I can. Yeah, it's a great way to think about story. I guess I could ask him some of the questions I usually ask. You a couple absolutely of them. should. How did you get into improv? Through regular performance. I my background is in theater, and I uh, went to school for theater as an actor and did some improvisation as a part of my acting training so that was kind of my first taste of it as a part of acting classes uh, as a matter of fact one of my actors uh, at, I went to Penn State one of my actor acting teachers at Penn State I know it's got the mic my microphone's doing a funny thing one of my acting teachers at Penn State had also studied at Second City okay and so as a part of warm-ups and things he would throw in little uh improv exercises and then most acting training has improvisational elements to it so I had a taste of it there then uh, moved to New York and did a number of years mostly in musical theater and some other things and then I did a a two-year world tour of a a show that I was cast in Um, I'd been cast in a Broadway show and then it toured internationally for two years and as a part of that international tour I realized that there was this huge community of people who did improvisation in various places. And when I was in, uh, we were playing in Australia, and I met some people who were part of an improv troupe that played in the theater that we were performing in. And they said, hey, we're doing a a workshop this weekend. Uh, You should come by. And so I I took uh, improv workshops with them and sort of got hooked. And they said, hey, we know these people in New York. So when I got off of tour, I called up the, the people that they had given me the contacts for, and uh, got involved with them and ended up getting into a company. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wow, that's really cool. I, I love everyone's stories, how they get into it, and how it kind of finds them in a way. So a, a couple of footnotes to that story. One is that the show was Mom and Chance. Yes? Yeah. 
for those of you who might remember that, I remember. which is cool. And one of the things I love about Michael is his awareness of his body and physicality on stage. You've also taught at Clown College, right? Yep. So that's something I'm always impressed with. The other footnote is the, I believe, I'm making this up in my head, but the people that you met in Australia were theater sports folk, they right? Were. And back in the day, before there were improv festivals and everybody had networked through our modern technology, right. the special thing about the theater sports community was that it was global. And we would have theater sports tournaments, and we knew each other, and there was a way that that community was cross-pollinating what was going on really around the world based initially on this format by Keith Johnstone. But, but I think it really fed and tipped and, and grew improv in general, certainly in the States and I think around the world, that people were getting to know each other and working together that way. And then that theater sports company in New York was the company where Michael... We didn't actually meet there, but we, where we first worked together. And now here we are at Mako doing our theater sports tournament right. currently as we speak. And the beat goes on. Yeah. And theater sports was, was huge in some of the places that yeah. I went. In New Zealand, the theater sports tournament, the, the national theater sports tournament played uh, at, on their main TV channel at 8 o'clock on a Saturday oh, night. Oh, wow. Uh, they, they were TV stars, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was Long before the, Whose Line Is It Anyway or any of that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. As an art form, as 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 a way to perform, on a personal level, what 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 does improv mean to you? I mean, what what, what do you get from it as as a person? That's a great question, and uh, there's a there's two parts to it. The first part is the thing that I got from it at first, and then it morphed into a whole other thing. The first thing that I got from it was the ability to act to use all the parts of me. Like when you're an actor, you're really there serving the script, serving the director, right. mm-hmm. and um, trying to bring your uh, emotions and ability to create a character to that and, and your ability to, to be in an imaginary circumstance realistically. But there, I had so many other interests that I found the joy of improvisation was I really got to also uh, use my writing interests, my writing skills, the being verbal. I got to use my uh, problem-solving abilities to figure out, well, how, if I want to be able to do this improvisationally, what do I have to do to get there? Are there exercises I could do to make me get there? So uh, problem-solving, MacGyvering sort of <laughs> part of my brain that I, right. that I enjoy so much. Uh, so it was sort of a way for me to use all the pieces of me, and that's what appealed to me at first. And it wasn't until years later that I realized um, the overarching idea of improvisation, the idea of focusing on your partner, uh, the phrase I use is make your partner look good, mm-hmm. uh, was something I desperately needed in my real life and didn't know it. I was I was really quite self-centered. I was really sort of, and I don't necessarily mean self-centered in a, negative way uh, so much as self, maybe self-absorbed self-focused self-focused yeah. whatever uh, but in any case it wasn't until years later that I realized that I really needed understand and recognize and develop in that way of uh, uh, focusing on other people and and that was years later and I realized and I, but I also thought like you just said earlier you, you, f- you find what you need to find or something yeah, like that yeah. so I feel like without realizing I needed to find that I did I mean yeah. I, I started in improv for one reason and then after I was in it a while I went 
oh, this is really making me listen to people rather than think of something really cool to say while they're talking and waiting till they stop flapping their lips so I can say my cool thing. Which I thought was something great that we learned today in both the workshops, but more, I think, in the uh, the second Shakespearean one, because I'm... I, on a personal level, I'm a real I, I self-judge. like As do we all. Yeah, you know, and I was able to turn it off and just enjoy the other people, just enjoy being connected with another person. Excellent. And uh, that's a really cool thing. Yeah. Who are some, who are some um, teachers or people that, you've, that have really inspired you where improv is concerned? Funnily enough, because we were just talking about Michael Gelman at the Second City, I I consider him my mentor. Uh, There was a period where, and I never studied with him in Chicago, but there was a period where he was coming to New York City a couple of times a year and was working towards actually transitioning to living in New York and starting his own theater company. Uh So he was trying to develop a a network and uh, students that he could teach and everything. So he was coming to New York usually for a week or two weeks at a time, they would book a you know a whole slew of workshops for him, and uh, I found I think I found out about him through you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Ms. Coppet, Ms. Cat Coppet. I can't remember how I found him, but I do remember studying with him a couple times and how wonderful it was, and it would make sense that I connected you. Yeah, maybe I had through I, Chicago City Limits, maybe. Yeah, when when I I, had, I forgot what level it was like maybe like level three or something at, at Second City that I had from him, and I got this real kind of like. Yoda feel from him. <laughs> He's great, you know. And when when he pulled out the, um, he made he asked us to read uh, "Hero with a Thousand Faces," mm-hmm. and I read that, and it's like all these things that I had thought about kind of coalesced and made sense where stories were concerned, and even even in, in my life, you know, you know about some spirituality and and oh, I I have this feeling. I don't know why I have this feeling, you know, and and. These connections, and it was just—it's just been a thing that's been in my life ever since. And I'm always buying one of those books, usually like the the Bill Moyer one, "Interview with Joseph Campbell." I'm always buying that for people as a gift. It's like you gotta read this. This, this is great. This is gonna really. So you met him and started working with him. I did. He was and, doing that. And what's funny is, is I got a completely different thing from him. The the thing that was so appealing to me was he gave me this sense that what we were doing was a craft mm. that that like there was something very i thought sort of work a day about him like yeah yeah like yeah he his yep. approach felt sort of blue collar to me yeah it's like we're gonna come in here we're gonna put in the time we're gonna do this thing uh a b c and d we're gonna find out what do you what did you know what did you what did you sense what happened there um what were you working on uh and it felt very sort of like a like a craftsperson, like somebody who goes to work and, and makes a wooden table that's beautiful. Uh, and I had never thought of it like that. Uh, oh, and it was really appealing to me, coming from a real blue-collar background, grew up in the country, and, you know, uh, sort of that, those were my people. And here was a guy who was going like, yeah, you go to work. You go to work and you do this thing. And it was really appealing to me. And then within that, there was a lot of... There was some esoteric stuff. There was, you know, the Joseph Campbell right. things. There was the fact that it was about human interaction and relationship. And my background in improv prior to Michael Gelman was very theater sports oriented, which tends to be story oriented mm. because it's based on Keith Johnstone and his and he was really concerned with story. And it wasn't until I started studying with with Gelman that I that I started to integrate 
relationships between yeah. people as the, the fundamental basis for a scene that story comes out of instead of let me just write a story and put it on these people. Yeah, it really it really it's is great. the like the meat of an improv scene, the relationship with yeah. them. It's it's And I really got that from him. Wow. That's cool. Do you have any questions for Michael? No, I, I just, I really, um, there were so many things that happened today in the workshop watching and playing with Michael that I was reminded of. And one of them is that, as we're talking now, having come from Chicago City Limits, which was the inheritors of, they were sort of the peers, I think, of Michael Gelman and inheriting that Chicago school, and then later finding theater sports. I always personally felt very lucky to have those streams converging and to end the one of those three thoughts <laughs> <laughs> the idea of really focusing on the relationship and the actor part of it is something that's great to bring in and I think for us at Mopco we need to circle back around to because we've done a lot of very narrative formats where mm-hmm. we've been focusing on the structure of the format a lot and to go back around to the fundamentals of being impacted by the other person and wanting something from the other person and being affected and changed by the other person. And then story happens because that's the engine of it and that's what we care about is the people. And we don't care if it's a scene where something big changes and there's some big advancement or whether we're just seeing a slice of their life. But what we care about is humans because we're humans. So that was. it feels great to have that coming back to us as a reminder to work that muscle. And this other wonderful thing that Michael brings to us, which is just this, uh, our marketing guru, Callan, was saying, was using the word today, abandon. Like uh-huh. to, to come at the work with this energy and relish and abandon and really exercise the muscle of not judging and not censoring your stuff right. and being spontaneous, which is, I think, something that we can sometimes fall into talking about but not really practicing at Mopco. So those are the two gifts that I feel like uh, Michael is, is bringing to us, especially this week, and that I look forward to us yeah. moving forward I, w- with ourselves and with yeah, our students. Yeah, I, I definitely want to do that, that, that warm-up that we did, the one with the, where you had the same, I love a ball. A ball is great because, and that, that one, that was like, oh, that was pretty awesome. It's it's a great it's a, it's it's really clear as to what's going on what your what your objective is and what your job is at the, and it's very important to the basis of improvisation I like that just a um, I think probably the thing I am proudest of of my classes there are a lot of classes out there and uh, there are a lot of people who do a lot of things better than me but the one thing that I sort of feel like I do that a lot of teachers don't is I think people do actually do more in my classes, maybe, I don't know, 30% more actual doing in my classes than other classes because of the way that I structure them. Yeah, uh, A lot of places you do a couple of group exercises and then you sit down and people get up a couple at a time and every, a lot of people watch and a few people do. And that's oftentimes the majority of the class. And I really like... Uh, feels good to me because I think improvisation is at its basis it, you got to do it you can learn some things by watching other people do it but you learn a lot more by doing you it get, yourself so I re- really work hard to design a class where you can do a lot you know uh, I wrote a blog piece recently that was entitled something like improv is the gym because I feel like in the work that we do in corporate training the principles of improv which used to be revelatory are now commonplace things like 
celebrating failure or not censoring yourself or yes and are becoming really commonplace and you can read about them in Fast Company magazine or the Harvard Business Review or the Wall Street Journal or the Times. And so then you say, okay, great. So is our work here done? Or do people who are not just getting up on stage to improvise still need improv? And, and what's what I came up with is it's the gym. What improvisers now have is this body of work where you can actually exercise those muscles. You know, it's one thing to say don't censor yourself or focus on your partner, make your partner look good, or be physical, you or do it. trust yourself, yeah. whatever that is. But it's sort of like saying, you know, go on the bike for an hour a day. You, you, you still have to do the work. And, and what Michael's work today with us made me realize is it doesn't even work to just say, you know, you need to go to the gym. <laughs> you still <laughs> you actually have to, you have to go to the gym. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I thought I was really fascinated. Uh, one lady in the class this morning, it was her first time. In her, in Susan, I think it was. Yes, how lovely was she? She, she was, was so lovely. She was fantastic. I talked with her a little bit afterwards. She's uh, really nice. But I was fascinated in, in watching her and her impressions because I know when I think back to when I first discovered improv and the teachers that I had of which I would love to have had you <laughs> in the early days because it was it, it was very um, I don't know I just wasn't very nurturing you're, you're very nurturing to the people oh, and very yeah and uh, but it was really fun to watch her just kind of like watch that improv light come on because I know when it comes on to people you can't shake it you know it, it's 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 a it's a powerful uh, thing, you know. It really is. <laughs> He's reminding me of we used to at theater sports in New York where we worked. We would put out a newsletter. So this was, I think, maybe towards the end of putting out this newsletter, we had one of those little Apple II computers in black and white, you know, the, where it was built in with the screen, and we could do a little bit of desktop publishing. But really, it was like in you know most of the time it was like cutting out pieces of paper and pasting them onto the thing and right. a friend of ours was the editor of this newsletter and it was a lot of work every month or you know quarterly he would put out this thing and as a new member of the company he asked me to write an article for it and i wrote this little essay about how improv was like drugs and i was an addict and i think there's even a uh, like a uh, blog now called like in, my improv addiction, um, and at the time it was you know this was going to go out to all the schools where we did school shows and the artistic director Oops. Was, Oops. was not happy and you know there's like the editor and the publisher came in and was like what are you doing you can't do this ripped it up you know it was a big That's thing oh, that, re- that reminds me around that same time oh this was such a bad idea this is so awful this this I think almost got me into fights on the subway um, this was in the nineties and. Nancy Reagan, do you rem- maybe you remember Just Say No? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it was Just Say No to Drugs. And, of course, we knew that one of the fundamental elements of improvisation was yes and yes and. And so we thought it would be cute and funny <laughs> to make a little theater sports button, and it, would, and it said, Just Say Yes. yes. <laughs> it said, Just Say Yes, and then it had theater sports, which nobody in the world, if you were outside of improvisation, knew right, what that right. was. And we, we started wearing them around. And... It took me a long time to go, why are people looking at me with this scowl? Particularly mothers. Mothers are looking at me with this scowl on their face. And then I went, they think I'm saying say yes to drugs. Because they don't know what theater's for. They can't even read it from right. across the subway. And we realized, oh my God. And we, you know, we, we ordered 150 buttons for everybody in the company and for all our friends. And we went, we can't yeah, we wear can't these buttons. No, everybody funny. thinks we want, we're advocating drugs. That's right. 
So we're not advocating drugs. Right. And, and improv, but, or and. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I do have to laugh because improv really is addictive. Right. It, I mean, there is something that can transform you and hook you. Yeah. You, know, you get bitten by the bug. Right. And so you, you talk about Susan, and I think, oh, dear. Yeah. Another potentially really, pro, you know, like, useful life, <laughs> like, where you make <laughs> uh, things that exist after they're done. Right. We've appropriated all of that creative energy into this ephemeral thing that where she'll never have anything except joy and inspiration. I've also thought of, of improv as a as a superpower as if you know it's a superpower that everyone can who 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 they have and can develop it in themselves because if you think of it i mean it you know not to you know pat ourselves on the back but it takes a certain amount of courage and bravery to get up and do what we do it's you know it's interesting when you said that that it's a superpower it, it partly it's about recognizing your own superpowers exactly. right? inside yeah, yeah, you and yeah. accessing them, and but the other is the skills and knowledge and principles and philosophies of improv do in fact make you a superhero, as you were saying. You know, you, you are a superhero, John. Thank you. I don't have quite. So I'm sure Michael Rock has something to say since this is his podcast, and I could stop shut up about philosophizing. No, no, no. You know what? We I, should, you absolutely are. What we should do is we should you two you two guys should play the word game. Do you want to? Sure. You don't want to. I, sure. That's, yes. And let's yes, do and. it now. What's the word game? The word game is a thing we usually play. Um, oh, I, I heard this you on the this. podcast. You, you try to say the same word at the same time? Yeah. You start off, if you start out with two random words, like I go three, two, one, and you say anything you want. And then you look for something thematically in the, that, middle. in the middle that connects those words. And you keep going until you get to the same word. Cool. Cool? Yeah. All right. Uh, three, two, one. Horse. Mouse. You said horse, and you said mouse. Mouse. Okay. So, let me know when you're ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Dog. Animal. Dog and animal. Okay. Ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Quadruped. <laughs> what you said? Quadruped. What did you say? Cat. Canine. Canine. Like. Like parallelly here. Like. Okay. Three, two, one. Dog. Wolf. Oh. <laughs> Wolf and dog. All right. Three, two, one. Dog. dog. <laughs> there you go. That's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. So one of the uh, one of the muscles of improv that Michael was reminding us about today in our workshops was to not censor yourself, right? To practice not censoring yourself. One of the things you have to do is not listen to all of those rules that come up in your head that are made up rules right. or try to be clever or try to be interesting. And one of the, you were very specifically saying, one of the things we go is like, oh, I can't repeat myself. Because that means I'm boring. That means right. I'm boring. But what if that's the answer? <laughs> what did you say today? You said, you know, there would be no songs if we didn't have repetition. Right. We actually love repetition. I mean, that's why they, you know, what, the rule of threes and the callbacks yes. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we could have gotten to dog a step earlier if I hadn't thought, oh, I shouldn't say dog because I already said, we already said dog, I should say wolf. You know, what's the new word? Uh, I'm confessing my... Your sin. Improv sin. Improv sin. Cool. I have a question for Michael. Yes. In your decades of improv experience, what's the 
what is what is your juiciest bit of advice for improvisers? Juiciest bit of it. Well, it, it, for improvisers who want to perform, it's different because over the years I have found a great deal of satisfaction in teaching improv to people who have no real interest in performing it. And I think my juicy bit to them is a lot different than my juicy bit to to people who want to perform it. We have time for both. Yeah. Huh. And actually, maybe it's not maybe it's not so different. It really is that idea of can you can you care more about the person you're working with than yourself is is really the juiciest bit, and it's I think the hardest thing to do. And I usually only get to caring as much about the person I'm working with as myself. <laughs> I mean that's as, that's as far as 50, I get fifty right there, yeah. And in fact, I think you're a better improviser if you care more about what's going on with your partner than you do with what's going on with you. And I think it's incredibly difficult, but it's uh, you, it's you, the thing that makes you amazing. You're like making unselfish choices instead of selfish choices. Or Yeah, in a, in and a, not even necessarily selfish choices. I mean, you could make a, a choice uh, well, yeah, yeah, that yeah. works for you that doesn't necessarily harm your partner or may even in fact help your partner but if it's still a choice that's primarily because you think it's a choice that's good for your character or your situation or you as an improviser it's it's still not the incredible synergy that happens when i care more about you than myself and you care more about me than yourself then there's this like it's like an an atomic reaction it's like that sustainability that sustainable thing where the neutrons are firing and and taking care of themselves you don't have to add any extra energy it's like a perpetual motion yeah Yeah. Uh, that's when it's really amazing and it's really hard to do and and actually I think uh, that would be the the tidbit that I would give to to both people who do improv for personal growth and people who do improv for for performance um, and I think in, in, it's hard for both and it's hard for different reasons. When you're performing, you naturally have an, an instinct for self-preservation because pe- you're up there, people are looking at you, people want you to entertain them. And so you've got all this pressure of, they want me, they want stuff from me, they want me to do this, they want me to do that. Oh, I'm just one guy. Uh, so it's very hard to go like, that's okay, I'm going to still focus on you and, and what's going to delight you? What's going to delight the person I'm working with? And then, if you're someone who's doing it for personal growth, it's that whole thing of, well, I, you know, I want to be successful in business. I, I want, I myself want to be successful. Me, I want to make money and be successful mm-hmm. and make a good product, whatever it is I'm doing. Or in my life, in my relationship, I want to be happy in my relationship. I want to be happy. It's not, I want my partner to be happy. You know, if you ask somebody, they'll say, I want to be happy in my relationship. Right. It's the rare person will go. I want my partner to be happy in the relationship. Now, if you if you draw it out of them, that's something that, of course, they believe and want. It's like, yeah, I absolutely want my wife, my husband, my partner to be, my business partner to be comfortable, to be happy. But the first thing that happens, you go like, uh, what's important to you in business? What's important to you in your family life? And you go like, I, I want to be secure. I want to be, generally, I statements. Right. So it's the same either way. You make me think about the conversations I run into both personally and with coaching clients and with my business clients and see in my improvisers, which is the the fear or sometimes just the awareness that my partner may not be playing reciprocally. So you say, if I focus 
you know, really about making you look good and I care more about you than myself uh, and my partner's doing that for me, then we have this synergy. And sometimes I feel like the resistance I get is, yeah, but it's not safe because my partner's not going to do that for me back. Yeah, right. That that's a, that's a thing that happens, yeah. So... I don't know. What do you say to that? It's like a trust thing. Yeah. You yeah. Just, yeah. Just, you, you completely trust. trust. Because it's sometimes it's True. legitimately dangerous and sometimes it just feels dangerous. But what do you... You, you got to take the chance that... You got to take the risk that I, I might get hurt maybe a little. And that's okay. You know, a little bit, you know. Yeah. And, and that's not easy to convince yourself of. Exactly. It's really hard it's to really convince hard. yourself. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So two things can happen as far as performance is concerned. One would hope that you do develop a... a pretty deep level of trust among your fellow players and all the rehearsals and the time working out and the pizza afterwards and all those things come together to help with that idea of trust and creating a community where that really is the way it works right yes Uh, and um and then there's the other thing that's i think harder is convincing yourself that if your partner doesn't put you first it's not going to be the end of the world like you can still put them first and you may help them make a thing. You may help them be more comfortable right. on stage. You may help right. them in a particular scene or whatever. And they it may not come back to you. And it's improv. Yeah. Or even if it's life, you know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's There's a, it's some a gift in there. Anyway. It's a moment. Yeah. yeah, it's a moment. Speaking of moments, have you ever had any these work with someone that had some kind of crazy, like clairvoyant moment with them? I mean, Cat and I have had a couple, and. Like, and it may harken back to your thing about we were really thinking about each other, and you connect on a another level, you know, lack of a better word, psychic level, where you really just tune in to to your partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, on when I was uh, with a group, we uh, when I was with um, the the company in New York City that Kat and I were a part of, one of our main uh, bread and butter gigs was doing improv shows in schools for school children five of us would go and and do a show in schools and um, we did a fair amount of them we would do six or eight shows a week um, in the daytime for kids and then we would also do two or three shows in the evening for adults and it was with generally a core of the same six eight ten people yeah so you started to develop a uh, a sort of a telepathy with them. You sort of knew where they were gone. They knew where you were gone. It was sort of, yeah, it's a, a kind of a magical mind one, reading. Yeah, thing. you come off the stage. You go, holy crap! How did that happen? You know, what, how would you think that? What was, what was that? We were doing some scene you, where I wrote a first act of a play years ago that took place in Palinville, New York, at this artist colony that Michael brought me to which was still, I think, of one of the happiest weeks of my life. And I wrote a play that was set there, and one of the characters, the two characters were this couple, this couple that had split off and split, and they had a daughter. I'm giving you too much detail. But both of them, in their own way, were using their daughter as a prop in their art. So the father was using this performance art piece. But the mother had this big mural that was on the fourth wall that was all prints of the baby, like handprints and footprints and butt prints yeah. we're using the baby as the paintbrush uh-huh. and we did a scene and you we where we had a baby and you said something about 
Let's use the baby. I had like gone back to the play and read it that week after not looking at it for years, not mentioned it to anyone. And we did this scene where we had the baby in the scene, and you said something about let's use it as a paintbrush. I was like, freaky. What? <laughs> yeah, it was right? freaky. That yeah. was it. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was like, what? Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was. It was pretty cool. And I, yeah. yeah I, I, I long for those things. It's really, that was before I was a mother. But when you wrote, when you wrote the when play, when I wrote the play, it's it was it's interesting to go back and look at it. I should I should bring it out. There was a lot a lot of times uh, when my partner would start doing some kind of a physical thing on stage at the beginning of a scene, and it would be very minimal uh, mime going on. And because we'd worked together so long, I would know exactly what she was doing or exactly what he was doing. And you could go in and start a scene because you knew that they were uh, building a model airplane. You just uh, I could just tell by their attitude and by the way they decided to do the mime. Uh, probably nobody else in the audience, they all knew that the person was doing something right. with their hands. And they all said, maybe they said, like, oh, he's making something, she's making something. And I would go like, they're putting together a model airplane. I just absolutely know they're putting together a model. And I would go in and I could make an offer that would that would yes and that right. and start to build on that. And that that's such a beautiful thing. It's so nice. How, how do you find a difference between uh, teaching improv between kids and adults? The, let's see. Um, kids don't have nearly the problem with Kids don't have nearly the problem with uh, spontaneity that adults do. Kids can access uh, stuff that just comes to mind generally. Not always. Uh, some kids get really um, scared about being judged of things. But a lot of them can access their spontaneous self. They can have a thought and give voice to it or act on it uh, right away. And yeah. it becomes very difficult for adults because we've spent so much more time not doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Spent so much time being adults. Um, uh, on the other hand, ad- adults can access that, but uh, adults can focus more, uh, and you can sort of give them a task or ask them to, to uh, focus on details, and they can detail in on things much more so. They tend to have a, a longer focus time than kids will right. in, in improvisational form. So you can give them things where they – and they can be more self-directed. With an adult, you can get a whole group of adults, pair them up all over the room, and say, "Work on this thing. Here's how. Here are the steps." And generally, they'll do it. If you do that with kids, you get about forty percent of them that do it part of the time. Sixty percent of them do it a little bit of the time. You know, whatever. Um, and ten percent of them don't do it at all. They just stand there and talk to each other. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so there's some some differences just in, with their level of sophistication. I want to thank you for doing this podcast today and helping us out today. And I've learned a lot. I I have a lot of stuff I'm going to bring to the table now. And we're going to have kids' classes over the spring break in April. Oh, fantastic. And adult classes. And I'm sure Michael Rock will come back and be with us. I would like that very much. Uh, We've still got uh, theater sports going. Yes, we do. Every Friday night through March, I think. We've got a tournament. Yep. Going on? Yep. Hopefully my team will get to play again. They, your team will get to play again. Awesome. I wasn't sure last night after we lost for the second time. <laughs> By one, one more point. time. But, uh, again, Michael, I want to thank you for coming. And, uh, Kat, for being you. Aw. Thank you for being you, John. And I would like to thank Mopco for the opportunity to come up and work with some amazing people. I had a great class in the morning and a great class in the afternoon. 
and um, it was it was a joy. You rock, Michael Rock. I always think of Sean Connery, You're the Rock. You're from <laughs> oh, that movie. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately. You will all um, see Michael Rock again up here, and if you seek him in New York City, is there some place they can find you? Uh, well, you can go to michaelrock.com. 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 Um, but I, I'm not. I, I, I teach a, an adult class uh, in Freeport, Long Island. I teach for a a, a conservatory, uh, performing acting conservatory in Manhattan. But I don't currently have uh, adult classes for anybody who shows in Manhattan. So you can't study with me in Manhattan. If you happen to live in Long Island, you can study with me. Awesome. Um, or you, maybe you can study with me here. Yes, when I come we'll back. make sure that we have. There we go. There we go. John. You're welcome. So, uh, love you guys. Bye. 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 This is Heather, and you're listening to Radio. Hey, this is Peter. This is Justin. This is Alex Tennyson. Hi. This is Alexander Stern, and you are listening to Radio Mopco. Hey there, Katzy. Hi, this is Cat. You're listening to Radio Mopco. Hi, this is Mike Burns. You're listening to Radio Mopco. Hi, this is John